Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another off-season episode where if you thought last week when we talked about development and playmaking and things like that was hardcore, we are going to take it to the next level today. In fact, today I think is a culmination of a lot of the things we've talked about on this show for the last two years with this guest who we'll bring in in a second, um, with Evan Zaucha, who's going to join us later, where we've talked about different ways to think about athleticism, and specifically athleticism in basketball. And so today's show is all about athleticism in basketball, and I will essentially present this model that I've developed and have been working on, uh, I guess, for a while. It's, It's been a long work in progress, back to the last time that we talked, here to help me walk through the first couple components of the model from P3 up in Santa Barbara. He's back, Eric Leidersdorf. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you for joining me. And I think this is this is the natural sequel to what we started a couple years back. I I appreciate having me on again, Ben. I, I am I'm glad to see Thinking Basketball survived uh, our original uh, our original pod together, <laughs> and I'm I'm looking forward to kicking it off again. We we won't ever let anyone know that we had to re-record <laughs> that show for for technical issues. That's, today we're gonna yeah today we're gonna try us. to get it on the first um on the first run. So let's start with the big idea, the big overview. Um, when people talk about athleticism in basketball, you hear it a lot with prospects. We just had the draft this time of year. You work with young athletes a ton. You're going to provide a bunch of information probably throughout the show as we go through this. But the term athleticism usually is talking about like this fast, twitchy, explosive, how high can he jump? Yep. How fast can he run? Um, does he look like you know, even does he, like he look like an Adonis? Does he look like a Greek sure, god? That's sure. that's what we think of as the great athlete. And then you you juxtapose that with a guy like Nikola Jokic, and people yep. say people will people will overtly say he's not a good athlete, but and so the spirit here is to really actually think about. I mean, for the last couple of years, I've been doing historical projects, I've been doing player profiles, I've, I've been looking at all this stuff and realizing, hey we shortchange the conversation big time when we only focus on this one definition of athleticism. And as I'll present today, I think that one definition is one big component, but I think there are two other big components. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right on. I think uh, in a lot of respects, the eye test still reigns supreme when it comes to how we assess athleticism or maybe how it's generally assessed. Um, But it's, it's complicated. You bring up uh, Nicola who, you know, is probably, you know, by the textbook definition uh, or maybe the historical definition, not one of the best 500 basketball playing athletes out there, but he's a guy who's had incredible success clearly to date. And it, you know, it's hard to rationalize him not being a, a good or a competent athlete if he's able to have so much success doing what he does. So it's a, yeah, it, it's a, a topic that, that warrants a bit more exploration. Yeah, that's the gap I'm hoping to to fill. And I think for me, um, it bubbles up talking about all-time players and what makes them successful. But it also has to do with how, how you know, your work, how we describe prospects, how we sort of create um, metrics or measurements of athleticism. You know, in the football, of course, it's the 40-yard dash. Sure. 
right? It's a 40 yard dash and it's your bet. How many times did you bench press 225 pounds? And as you know, that's how you play most sports. You line up and you hear a gun <laughs> yeah. and you run for 40 <laughs> yards without any equipment or a ball. Yeah. And, uh, and then you lay on your back and you, and you press upward. That's exactly how most sports work. Right. Um, let's get to the model. Let's start with that. Sure. Cause, cause we're going to walk through a bunch of components and I, and I want to, it, this is something that plays better, um, like if I had a whiteboard behind me, but we're on radio. So I want to, I want to just get it out there that I think there are actually three big branches of basketball athleticism. The first one I'm going to call hard athleticism. This is the fast twitch athleticism I was just mentioning. It's what you called that traditional athleticism. I think mostly falls into this category. Yep. The, the second component of this physical kind of athleticism is what I'm calling soft athleticism. You could also think of this as kind of like a sensory perception system. We'll get into these components and and what makes players successful and why they're important. And then the last component, and we'll bring Evan in to discuss this. It's an extension of the podcast I did with him on feel um oh god when was that that might have been a year or two (laughs) ago as well i can't keep track of time anymore man um it's not just you yeah okay good so that component that third component um i think of as mental or cognitive athleticism so we've got the physical branch of things in basketball uh that hard component of athleticism the soft component of athleticism and then later on we'll get to the cognitive component or the mental side and sure. as i as i've said before uh, i think i said it on last week's show technically this is all it's all mental it's all nervous system it's all inputs and outputs in your brain but yeah. for the for the purpose of the way we describe players and describe traits and tools um, i think it does help to say this is this is cognitive and this is physical yeah, and I, I think for the purposes of the model, too, it's it's important just for us to be able to understand, I guess, what we're discussing or have a you know pretty precise discuss, discussion about the topic. Um, it's important for us to break it down, you know, kind of in increments. But, uh, you know, and we've referenced this before, none of these things act in isolation, right? And, you know, to that, and that's where the complexity really, you know, starts to get built in is when we're talking about elements of hard athleticism, soft athleticism, and then some of the, the cognitive elements, too, all, you know, working together simultaneously, which, which makes this a, yeah, it you know, can be a pretty, pretty nuanced discussion. I'm so glad you mentioned that because, um, one, everything that we're going to talk about works in conjunction, um, with greater or lesser success, depending on the athlete and the, and the circumstance. Sometimes you have to draw on, you know, a handful of these components. Sometimes we could probably diagram a play if we got a pick and roll play up with a certain player. And depending on what happens on the play, we could say like 95 or 100% of this model is in play just in this one pick and roll in basketball. That's, sure. that's kind of the motivation for this. So I'm so glad you mentioned that all these things work in conjunction depending on the context. And then the other thing that kind of sits on top of the model, if you will, is your build as an athlete. You're just, yeah. your your right. Your, your morphology, your anthropomorphic makeup, how tall you are, uh, the, the proportions of your levers and your limbs and your hand size and things like that. So the, I'm so glad you mentioned that because all of the things we're going to talk about plug into those ideas. Yeah, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm ready for it. Let's, uh, let's get to it. Oh, okay. All right. Let's enough, enough teasing. <laughs> um, uh, so let's start 
with the physical branch of athleticism and this first huge component that I'm calling hard athleticism. It's all this fast twitch stuff. Um, let's, let's start with strength, right? I, I mentioned that I mentioned the bench press strength to me. Uh, we're talking about your size, your mass, the power you can generate. And in basketball, this is like holding position when you take contact, whether you're playing defense or you're dribbling and someone bumps you. Um, it's delivering contact. You know, back in the old days, I think there was more of a focus on 10 guys grinding against each other in the paint. And now the game is is more spaced out. So you don't see those same kinds of scrums, those rugby scrums for rebounds, if you will. Sure. Um, but, you know, in, in essence, we're talking about force generated in explosive movements in the horizontal or even vertical plane. Yeah, I, you know, Frank, I'm, I'm glad we're starting here as well. I think, uh, you know, for I don't, you know, at least the past handful of years, and understandably so, I think length has been discussed, you know, pretty frequently in in basketball. But I think we're starting to see um, strength really value, you know, come come to be valued here again as well. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a it's a relatively, I will say, underappreciated element of you know the basketball being played today. There are some athletes who trade in strength, who trade in being able to move someone off a spot or not be moved off their spot. Um, and that is a that is just a, an incredibly useful um, trait to possess if you're playing basketball at the highest level. So one of the reasons, or, or maybe the main reason Eric is here, is to provide any research insights that he can or any little measurement and statistical tidbits that uh, they've uncovered in the lab up in Santa Barbara. So at any point, feel free to jump in with those. Um, but just a few examples of big-name athletes that came to mind for me that kind of illustrate this. I think historically back in the old day, like Shaquille O'Neal sure. is just is just the ultimate example. Just I mean, the archetype. Yeah. 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 I mean, like what is good? The man was bringing down backboards um, <laughs> when he got into the league and, and, you know, he could hurt people accidentally just by spinning into them with too much violence. But, um, you know, I think of guys like Marcus Smart today yep. who's smaller, but is able to maintain and generate a ton of functional strength on the basketball court so he can guard big people in the post and hold his position um, and things like that. I think that's what we're talking about here with this category. And then even on offense, the two guys uh, who I think, you know, again, trying to focus on big names and and current players that come to mind that kind of illustrate some of the components here. Kawhi Leonard, you know, core strength, um, force through the floor, which means when he drives with the dribble and he gets his hip by you, good luck moving him off his path. <laughs> yeah. He he moves you. Yep. Uh, and then, of course, Giannis, the, extension, the evolutionary extension of Shaq, and we saw it with the Celtics series, just right. f- like just massive force, massive putting the shoulder down, driving through you. So those are, those are some names um, that came to mind that I think illustrate sort of the functional component of strength as this big, important, fast-twitch athletic tool. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Marcus Smart too, and you know, you know, some of the guards as well. I, you know, I think when we tend to think about strength, if we're if we're going to do, going to ascribe a unit to uh, strength, it would be a, a newton, right? A, a measure of force is just a you know a very uh, basic measure of you know both your mass or how how big you are, and then how well you're able to accelerate that mass, I suppose. Um, but if we're going to ascribe a a unit to strength, it would be a you know a newton, right? And typically. 
that is associated with bigger athletes, right? The, you know, the shacks of the world. Um, and you know, today Giannis and, you know, and, and those sort of, those sort of guys, there are, um, you know, it becomes interesting as well when you start to break it down by position to some extent here, right. Where you start to think about guards or smaller athletes, um, you know, who possess the strength properties to maybe, you know, move bigger guys off, off their spots or just hold their position too. Um, I think about guys like Kyle Lowry, you know, guys who are pretty, you know, pint sized, right. But there's some, there's some real heft there relative to other athletes in their position, um, where even if they're not going to, uh, you know, past the more traditional uh, measures of athleticism that we see, you know, the vertical jump at the combine or, or whatnot, they have some real physical qualities here that that play and that make them, you know, allow them to be a handful on either end of the floor. Yeah. And, and not just Lowry, but someone for the last 10 or 15 years like Chris Paul. Yeah, exactly. Who, you know, he's he's diminutive in stature, but He's always, especially in the modern game with the way you can front and kind of protect the backside, like he gets switched onto the post and he can hold position. Drew Holiday is another guy who just seems extraordinarily strong through the hips and the core. And you see that when he goes around screens and just trucks through people and and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's something that is really helping a lot of guards in today's game in that component, especially on defense. Yeah, I, I just I think it's, you know, coming off the heels of the draft, like you said as well, it's just it's interesting to see teams start to value this property again uh, here again, where, um, you know, we're looking at athletes, you know, David Roddy is a guy who came through the draft, right, who's, a you know, we'll say an atypical NBA body, um, right, but who relative to, you know, to most guys who's going against pretty strong, a guy that we worked with at P3 uh, a few years back was Grant Williams, um, where, uh, you know, Going into his rookie year, I think he he measured in the 96th percentile for us for um, you know on our, our strength test and the way that we we assess strength um, on an athlete's initial assessment at P3 because we don't want it you know the traditional way you could do this would be something like you know it's called an isometric mid thigh pull um, or with you know almost like one RM back squat or a certain type of lifts um, one, one one rep max one rep max thank yeah. you uh, and we you know we typically do not want to put athletes that we've never seen through that assessment. Um, so we, we've run a series of, of validation tests uh, in house. And one way that we assess this is by having athletes jump, uh, holding a, a trap bar or a hex bar loaded with 60 kilograms or you know, about 130 pounds, um, basically assessing how quickly they can move that additional mass on top of their own weight. Um, and Grant, you know, moved this faster than 96% of the guys that we'd seen in the NBA to the, you know, to, well, I guess to, to this point, which is, a little over 800 guys who spent time in the NBA and the ability to, you know, again, move, not just your own mass, but move some additional mass as well translates to being able to do the same thing on court to some, you know, to some respect. And um, Grant's a guy who we see trade in that property, you know, relatively effectively. He, uh, he's, he's, he's built like a tank. Yeah. And when you hit him, it's like hitting a brick wall. Uh, and just so I'm understanding that, is that a vertical, movement you're putting them through so it's it's kind of like a trap bar deadlift with a with a jumping yeah so yeah instead of a a trap bar deadlift where you you know your feet are on the ground the whole time you pick the trap bar up and then your goal is to jump as high as you can while you're holding that thing um so you know you're jumping with that additional load and we want to see basically how well you can elevate with that additional mass is there a bigger name in the nba that's higher than the 96 percentile or is that a is that a trade secret um 
there are no bigger names who are ranking higher than, than okay. Grant at this point. Okay. Uh, like there, right. I mean, there are there are there are plenty of you know impressive athletes on uh, on that test. And of course, look, one one test, one property doesn't rule everything. I think um, you know taking it to to this draft, not to make this another draft pod for you, but um, <laughs> you know taking it to, to this draft, I think the, you know a lot of questions will are you know have been asked about. Uh, Chet Holmgren is Chet strong enough? You know, will he you know survive life in the NBA? Um, and again, I think where this becomes a pretty nuanced conversation is for someone like Chet, um, you know, it's, he doesn't need to be the strongest guy in the league, but the question is, can he be strong enough to leverage the other incredible tools that he does have? Um, yeah. And, and I think he, you know, he becomes an interesting case study in that sense. Well, this is why you're here because I think he's such a perfect example to think about where you look at him, you look at the shoulders, you look at the arms. One, he's young. Athletes usually fill out as they get older. But two, you would say it's kind of like what they said about Kevin Durant. Right. Um, you know, when he came in, you would just be like, well, you know, I can truck this guy. He doesn't look like he can lift a weight. So what's the big deal? <laughs> yeah. But the, the functional strength component that you're describing, being able to actually move mass and generate force, um, that's what matters. And, you know, as long as he can kind of tread water there, um, I think it's something that will probably be not a huge deal for him. Um, certainly not a limiting factor. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. Uh, so he spent the past few months with us, you know, pre-draft, uh, as well. And he, you know, I, I would bet on him. He works his ass off. He, you know, lifts more than people are going to give him credit for. Uh, and yeah, you know, I think, you know, when we start to think about how, um, you know, kind of performance on each test slots amongst performance on other tests that we run where we are looking at lateral acceleration or change of direction or change of pace. Um, right. We tend to look more traditionally for like really overt holes in someone's game. Um, yeah. Because those are the things that get exposed at the NBA level. And we think when we you know think about Chet, of course, um, you know, that was the first place our, our mind went, right. Is he going to perform well enough when it comes to some of these strength measures that we possess and he like he does he does just fine right so when we look at um, when we look at him no he's not setting the bar for elite performance on on something like this but does he have the requisite tools to allow him to take advantage of the other gifts that he has and i think um yeah i I would say if if we're going to place a bet on it we would say probably yes let's go to the next component of hard athleticism in this model. And again, I think this is something that fits that more traditional, we put them up on the screen on draft night and we show these highlights and that is, well, let's talk about them together. It's change of direction and then change of pace. And this is kind of the whole family of agility and your awareness of your body and, um, you know, how, how sharp are your crossovers and things like that. So, so, uh, change of direction to me is really about if you're on defense, moving your feet, uh, swiveling your hips, recovering your body as you go left and right and sideways, um, crossing over on offense. I alluded to the, the, the sharpness of your cuts off ball. Like think of a wide receiver running routes. These are all yep. change of direction, movement patterns to me, uh, and, a, and, a, and the next big component here of hard athleticism. Yeah. I, and when we start to think about change of direction and change of pace, um, I think again, maybe this is a, a drum that I'll keep beating throughout the, the duration of our, our chat today. Um, but it's you know this is a uh, this is a component of hard athleticism that really starts to tap into other factors on this list as well, right? When you think about the ability to kind of swivel or flip the hips, um, you know we're leaning into you know not to 
spill the beans, but you know, the pliability <laughs> component a little bit, right? We're going to start to talk about um, you know some other factors that are related to an athlete's ability to orient their body in a way that they can change direction or uh, pace efficiently. Um, so this this becomes a pretty uh, all encompassing group where you know, and frankly, there's been a lot of uh, research done on in the performance or biomechanics space about all the factors that go into differentiating agility versus change of direction and the subheadings under change of direction that, uh, you know, allow athletes to perform well versus in certain cases, not so well. Um, so this is a, this is a very, yeah, but this, this can be a very, uh, slippery slope here. Uh, no pun intended. Uh, but I, I will publish this model and, and more of a visual layout of it with some additional notes on backpicks.com. Um, that'll be available for the public, I think. And so you'll get a, a more of a visual kind of um, download of what Eric's just alluding to. But we're now in a part of the model with change of direction, change of space that that really plugs into kind of a larger family that cuts across categories. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you keep coming back to that. Because in this case, especially, like, what's going on with your body and how you're able to in basketball terms, you know, react, move your feet, uh, make a move, shift your body to the left, come back to the to the right, whether you're dictating the action on offense or reacting on defense, all this stuff kind of starts to cr- cut together. Uh, let me give you a couple examples that came to mind for me. And then if sure. you have any, if you have any of your um, juicy numbers to share, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm yeah. On, yeah, I'm on the edge Take of my seat. Er- Eric hasn't told me what categories he has data for yet. So um, every time we get to a new category, it's just, I'm kind of like a kid in a candy store. The examples I for me. I hope to not disappoint. All right, take <laughs> us in. Okay, so I think the historical example that I wanted to throw out there was Manu Ginobili, who sure. has these incredibly kind of different and almost awkward looking when you've never seen them left to right, shifty, change of mo- change of direction moves. Um, and I think some of it was credited at the time for him, like being a Southpaw or he didn't, he didn't, he didn't really fit in any box, but if you actually just go back and watch them, like he has some ridiculous lateral agility patterns that really, really helped him as a penetrator, as a ball. It, it, it kind of was a huge, um, foundation of his sure. offensive game, his immensely underrated offensive game, I should say. But then for guys today, I think, I think we, we think of guards. So um, just going back to some of the work I did in the past season, 2022, John Morant, just, uh, just incredible change yeah. of direction stuff on him. Um, Donovan Mitchell, a kind of a different kind of athlete, but also small, low to the, low to the ground, um, yep. right? These thick quads and these j- just really, really incredible stuff there. But then I don't want to, um, you know, leave out some of the big men. And one of the rookies that uh, you and I have discussed this season was Evan Mobley. Right. And just in his ability to move both his feet and his hips as a defender, I think this is where when I'm scouting a player or talking about a player's athleticism, this change of direction component uh, really stands out. Yeah. And I I think, um, you know, one thing that maybe we can echo from some of the data that we've collected is that it looks like there are almost different types of change direction athlete, right? So some, right, you can start to break down by, um, by size as you've done, right. You know, the way it works or the way it looks for a guard is probably different than the way it looks or the way it works for a big man, um, you know, to, to some extent, but, um, you know, when we go back, uh, to think about some of these different properties that allow athletes to excel in a change of direction environment, 
um, yeah, I think we're seeing a few, you know, kind of a handful of components. So the, the one uh, that struck a chord earlier um, when you were discussing this topic um, came from, you know, I, I, I think back to, um, you know, we've developed a series, we run a series of cluster analyses here, right? Where essentially we take, um, you know, probably about 10 different components that we, uh, or 10 different variables that we measure during an assessment. Some are anthropometrics, right? Height, weight, reach, those sort of, uh, of, of uh, variables. Um, some are traditional performance, right? Jump displacements, like you'd see at the NBA combine. Um, some are force production numbers. So, you know, concentric force, you know, a, a vertical accelerative force, uh, or eccentric force, which is like a, a decelerative force. Um, and then some are, are, are kinematic values as well. So when we have our, our motion capture system, we're able to see joint by joint what, you know, what occurs at the ankle, at the knee, at the hip, as the athlete goes through a jump or goes through a cut. And we've identified a few, um, yeah, I'd say high value, uh, kinematic targets in, in these athletes. So when we throw, you know, kind of, I think right now the way we're running it, when we throw these 10, um, you know, variables at, uh, you know, through our cluster analysis, we see different pods of athletes break out, right? And, you know, one of these groups that has kind of caught my attention, <clears throat> excuse me, for uh, as long as we've been running this analysis are called our, our kinematic movers. These are athletes who, who trade almost exclusively in like joint by joint efficiency, right? So they're not necessarily guys who are going to be jumping the highest or, you know, uh, yeah, they're, they're not winning the combine box score, right? That's, that's not where they're, where they're going to excel, but they seem to have um, these underpinning incredibly efficient tools um, at the hip and at the knee in particular that allow them to perform incredibly effectively on court, right? So guys who fall into this category for us, uh, you know, I'd say the two headliners, CJ McCollum, Trey Young, right? A couple guys who are just very shifty with the ball in their hands, right? Very, you know, fluid, right? Very, um, you know, dynamic if, you know, if maybe not traditionally explosive, um, but they're still able to get from, you know, to all their spots in a very, you know, kind of expedient manner, just given the tools they have on board, right? So CJ McCollum, knee extension velocity and acceleration, both over the 90th percentile. Trey Young, similar properties, you know, ranking 92, 93 percentile. So these are guys who have some really interesting underpinning mechanics that allow them to just be very effective um, in this respect. Yeah. And, and you're making me think of the difference between our first category strength, where I would say something like an explosive movement, acceleration, speed in, in basketball falls more in that category. However, we, you know, as I said, I'll, I'll go into more detail um, when I lay this out on the site. But here you would look at someone like Trey or CJ, and I love those examples. And you're not thinking them of them as winning a foot race. And you're right. not thinking of them. You're not thinking of them as being the most, uh, you know, explosive penetrator or vertical athlete or something like that. But within their short space, functionally, and we've seen this now more than in the history of basketball, where historically you would go forward and maybe a little to the side. Now you can use all 360 degrees. You can get to your step back. You can go left and step back. You can go forward and stop. And this is where I think change of direction and change of pace come into play so effectively. Mm -hmm. You're not talking about that traditional athlete. And yet, sticking with your two examples of Trey and CJ McCollum, um, they almost, especially CJ as a scorer, he almost lives in this this sweet spot of like, yeah. as long as I can shake you and change, change direction a little bit and kind of lose you in this short space, then I can get an open shot. And that's how he's made tens of millions of dollars, basically. 
Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, this incredibly efficient mechanical system with that he's able to pair with, you know, sort of just elements of deception, right. That allow him to be as effective as he's, as he's been. Uh, yeah. He's, he's always been a guy for me who um, I don't know. is just like his, his numbers are fascinating to look at because, you know, again, those top line numbers that we're used to looking at that we're used to seeing on, you know, on sports center when they, when they highlight the combine, they're not there, but there are, you know, probably more basketball specific tools that, uh, are just, you know, operating at an incredibly high level form. Yeah. And let me, let me fold in change of pace that I've alluded to here. Uh, I think these often work in conjunction with players and the big part of change of pace for me, as I've sort of laid it out in the model is acceleration and deceleration, right? And just this sort of, um, ability if you if you pair it with change of direction to go in 360 degrees and not necessarily be Usain Bolt you're not necessarily right. to to use your term you're not necessarily winning the box score combine which is I think such a great way to put it but um you know if you think of someone like Luka Doncic who was the first example for me on change of pace um James Harden but, you know, peak James Harden, if you go back a couple right. of years, uh, man, I mean, he would just put the ball in a yo-yo and both of these guys can accelerate quickly enough and then decelerate enough to kind of jerk the jerk the defender around and manipulate them enough to create space, create advantages, create shots, things like that. Steve Nash historically yep. was was really, really good at this for someone, again, that doesn't win uh, the box score combine. Yeah. And I I think, um, you know, when we think about acceleration and deceleration, um, you know, I guess a lot of the values that we tend to associate with more traditional uh, performance metrics are somewhat aligned with accelerative values as well, right? Your ability to generate, you know, accelerative force tends to correlate pretty nicely to ultimately your ability to jump high or run fast. Um, So I think when we start to think about this, you know, we're always most intrigued by the, you know, the athletes who, you know, excel in deceleration and the two you touched on, uh, James Harden, 99th percentile in this category for us, Luca, you know, even as a rookie was, I think 94th percentile, um, for this property. And, you know, at least going back a couple of years, I don't know if it's still the case, but you know, those two guys were shooting more step backs than, you know, than anyone we'd seen, um, in the league at that point. I, just for the record, I did not know those numbers. <laughs> Eric did not tell me those numbers. Those were just the salient examples that that popped into my head. Um, <laughs> yeah, look, those guys are. I mean, you know, those guys are, are the two that we we tend to talk about as far as they. You know, if if you know, if Grant Williams trades in strength and being stronger, these guys trade in being able to to decelerate incredibly effectively. And when we think uh, too, again, where change of pace and change of direction tend to link up um, is your ability to decelerate tends to be, uh, or yeah, tends to determine how well or how effectively most athletes can change direction. Um, right. Whether that's, you know, linearly or, or laterally as well. Um, and so having this ability to decelerate, especially when you have the ball in your hands, if you stop quicker than the guy who's guarding you and they keep moving, you know, after you've stopped, you've generated space without necessarily going anywhere. Um, and that's a, a hugely you know valuable property for those guys. Uh, any other stuff you want to share in this category before we move on to the next component of hard athleticism? I uh, so it, just two guys who um, stand out to me as being um, well, they rank in the 96th percentile or higher for both accelerative force and decelerative force produced. Those two guys are Anthony Edwards and Zach Levine, um, right? So these are our two guys who you know the, the only two in our data set who rank you know that high in both of these properties. Um, 
you know, and, and I think when we, you know, those are guys who can generate a shot pretty much any time they want. Um, and, and I think this, again, speaks to their ability to uh, whether they want to trade and blow and buy somebody or whether they want to trade and stopping harder than them. Um, you know, they're, they, they've got the, the tools for the job. Uh, those are great examples. So the next big component of this hard athleticism element of basketball athleticism that I want to talk about is what I just described as vertical plane athleticism. Um, and for this, I'm really thinking of not just your vertical jump, you know, which is something that's part of your your kind of box score combine, sure. if you will. Um, so it's not just the vertical height you can achieve off the floor, but it's things like your load up time to reach a near maximal height. Um, it's things like your second jump, right? You, you yep. jump in yep. basketball and a lot of times you have to jump again really quickly, or you're moving in one direction, you have to recover and jump in another. So this sort of vertical plane athleticism, we touched on it a decent amount in our first Mm -hmm. show a couple years ago, if anyone wants to go back and and listen to that. Um, But, you know, this is part, I think, of the the core fast twitch athleticism of basketball. Yeah. And it's it's, it's a category, I think, that's deceptively, um, yeah, it's deceptively complex to your point what we think about is how high a guy jumps or how high a guy can, can touch, but there are ultimate or there are components here um, that allow athletes to, you know, or that athletes tap into, I should say, when they do perform this action uh, that ultimately probably have, uh, you know, much more um, relevance to outcomes on court. Yeah. And you um, wrote a paper on this. Are we allowed to discuss some of the things I think it's a, in a preprint phase right now. Uh, we we can discuss uh, if you don't you know if you're not afraid of scaring off all your listeners. <laughs> uh, it is pretty horrifically boring, but let's uh, let's well, do it. So this one has actually been been published, so we can we can talk okay. about this one freely. Okay. Yeah. Well, the, the the takeaway from that is the three different jump types. Um, right. Why don't I give a couple examples? You can riff off those examples, and sure. then. And then I think from the examples, you could probably provide some really cool uh, insight with the three different jump types. We won't scare people with the details of the methodology of the paper, but I think the takeaway there uh, is pretty relevant to kind of the the nuance and the subtleties of the actual like differences in types of vertical plane athleticism in basketball. So a couple examples that jumped out to me, um, Rob Williams, that, that second jump, yeah. Uh, Quickness off the floor, I think you're going to allude to the type of jumper that he is that facilitates that. That obviously is something that has made him an extraordinarily gifted shot blocker, uh, paint protector. Um, and, you, you know, you forget sometimes with Rob that he's only like 6'9". He's not someone <laughs> who has this, you know, he's not Rudy Gobert. He's not, right. He doesn't have a 7'9 uh, wingspan or what is, right. is Rudy Gobert like a 10-foot standing reach? I feel like he can dunk. Um, you know, I think I think he's it's Mark there. Eaton. Yeah, Mark Eaton or Manute Bull back in the day. There's like a famous picture of them holding the rim um, without we, jumping. We just we just te- uh, tested Taco. Uh, and, uh, yeah, yeah. You know that man is comfortably above the rim from a standstill. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not fair uh, to the rest of us. But um, <laughs> h- historically, you know, and again, I don't I don't want to uh, slant negative necessarily, but 
I think the load up time is so interesting because if you go back to the 60s for the Greatest Peaks project, I watched all the available public footage on Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain. And while I hold Wilt Chamberlain's defense in extremely high regard, one of the interesting differences between them is the way they jump mm. and, and their load up time. And Russell, I think, is going to fit in the first type of jumping category that you're going to describe. And Wilt is off the top of my head, almost more like the third, where sure. Wilt has a longer load up because he's bending and flexing to get down when he wants to achieve a maximal jump, leaning his torso forward a little bit and exploding up that way. Um, that's great if you're doing a vertical leap test. It doesn't matter. Right. But in, in the game, there might be some functional differences between that and the way Russell jumped. Russell was a little bit more upright when he jumped, and it's kind of like what looks like a springier calf-loaded jump because he doesn't need to bend the knees quite as much. Yeah, I, I yeah, I, I think you're, you know, you're, you're alluding to certain components of the paper that I think are, are, are right on, right? Where, um, we, you know, when we ran this, this test, essentially all we were doing, we were having athletes perform, um, you know, a, just a maximal vertical leap. Um, and ultimately we're trying to categorize, uh, different styles or different, um, different ways that athletes try to achieve this maximal jump height, not by influencing them at all, just saying, you jump to your thing and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll study it on the back end. Um, and it was just very interesting to see three distinct types of jump, um, emerge right from, you know, from this test that we, you know, that we look at just jump height at the combine here, we can start to understand differences between these jump styles. Some athletes who need to go through almost no range of motion, which means they can get off the ground very quickly. Other athletes who go through an incredible range of motion, which, you know, is an advantage in some senses, but, not in others, especially if you want to get off the ground quickly. Um, and other athletes who bend excessively at, you know, at the hip. And, you know, I think that uh, leads to its own kind of host of, of strength and weaknesses as well. Yeah. And um, to be clear, that test was all two-footed jumping, right? Correct. It's all, you know, a counter movement jump. So just from a standstill, the athlete swings down and jumps up all off two feet. Yep. And so I think another component of the vertical plane is even something like the diversity of your jump strength. Is it is it always two feet? How do you load up on two feet? Um, are you also a good one-footed jumper? I think you mentioned this with Zach Levine last time, who just yep. shows incredible diversity where it's like right leg, left leg, both legs, doesn't matter what the takeoff is. Um, he's he's exploding up into the air. Insane. Uh, I mean, he's he I probably first is, you know, as long as I work in, in the space, I think Zach will always be um, you know, the athlete that comes to mind when we think about just jump diversity, right? How, you know, however you, you tell them to go get it, it's, it's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely incredible. Um, anything more on vertical plane stuff before we go to the next category? Uh, I guess just, just quickly kind of going back to your, you know, Rob Williams, you know, bit among, among other things. I, you know, so I was going through and looking, you know, through some of our data and, and, you know, anticipation of, of, uh, of this chat. Um, and you know, it's interesting to hear, you know, he and, and Rudy actually come up, right. You know, when, when you brought them up a second ago. Um, so I went through and I just kind of sorted our athletes by height touched. So not, you know, not displacement, right. Not a 36 inch vertical, but ultimately height touched, right. Is he touching 12, two or 12, three from an, from an approach. Um, and those two guys, you know, showed up as like, you know, kind of nearest neighbors when it comes to guys who can get comfortably over 12 feet and get there very quickly, right. Their ability to do so pretty like pretty stunning um you know the other guy the only other guy i, I actually probably should have brought him up or change of direction or change of pace uh area as well as scotty barnes in a you know in a similar respect right but he's not a guy he's even you know shorter than rob um but scott 
Cincinnati is just, I, I think his, even, even was that last year? Yeah, I guess uh, I, you know, I think we were pretty bullish on his, his athleticism. I think even we undersold it a little bit. Scotty has some incredible tools um, and you know, that he's in this category with Rudy and Rob, when it comes to getting comfortably over 12 feet and getting there very quickly, uh, he's, he's an absolute, absolute freak show. It, it's amazing. We've gone this far without mentioning Michael Jordan. Um, <laughs> I've been, I've been, I've been saving him because I feel like you could mention him on so many categories. Uh, I've been saving him for this last category of hard athleticism, which is pliability. You alluded sure. to it earlier. Um, and for pliability, the, the concept here is not just about something like preventing injury because you're thinking about how your body bends and maintains strengths at angles and how malleable you are and your, your, your control of your body in the air as you kind of move and take contact and things like that. Um, but it's things like your body control and your ability to get to extreme angles, you know, and if you ever slow down Michael Jordan film, he's got this extreme <laughs> shin angle. It's because he's his hands on the ground practically when he's driving. So of course we could have talked about him in a number of different categories <laughs> so far, especially, especially the vertical plane. Um, but I, I think he's to me, when I think of pliability and there's a, you know, John Morant has some of this stuff in the modern times, um, a very underrated one in this category for me is LeBron James, who yep. over the last 20 years, I, I've seen that man's body bend and fold in every different way possible. And it basically performs under under that different sort of variety of stress or different types of angles. And so not only, as I said, does this help with like injury prevention, but it gets you in areas of the sport where you're up in the air and you take contact and you bend and you twist and you slither and you slide and you yep. turn yep. and... All those things are hugely important, especially finishing around the rim in basketball. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, in in house, I guess you know we refer to it as as mobility, but you know a similar, very similar concept. We study mobility or pliability, um, you know, in every athlete that that walks through the door because it it has so many implications for um, you know your ability to tap into these other uh, aspects of hard athleticism that we've talked about, right? Whether it's vertical or whether it's change of direction, change of pace. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think especially in like change direction environment, the ability to put, you know, really what you're, you're, you're talking about is your ability to put your body in a position to generate force at a unique or an extreme angle. Right. Um, right. All that increase, you know, increasing pliability or mobility, it's not necessarily going to have you run faster or change direction more effectively on its own. But if you can pair that with the ability to generate force in that position, now you're talking right now, you're, now you're able to. Um, yeah, to, you know, to, I don't know, not just get from point A to point B, but almost rethink what point B could be. Yeah. Um, Eric, I'm not opposed to changing any of the language of this model. You know, we haven't <laughs> even published it up on the site yet. So sure. uh, there may be ads or tweaks or minor changes by the time we finish recording this episode uh, and actually get this out. You've seen this in, in advance, but this is the first time you and I have really been able to to talk through it. And this is exactly why. Uh, I wanted you on here. Um, any metrics or any other kind of insight you can provide on this category before we leave hard athleticism and get to this is what the the real thinking basketball listeners came for, which sure. is to get beyond hard athleticism to the good stuff. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I, I guess one guy uh, just, you know, because it's relevant now on the you know, on the heels of the draft. I think um, when we think about looking at pliability or mobility, um, we think a lot about lateral movement. 
here. Um, so one aspect that we talk about is called, you know, hip abduction, right? It's essentially, it, it, it's the ability to move like a, if you're performing a lateral movement, it's your ability to move that drive leg kind of laterally away from the midline of your body. Um, and, a, you know, a young guy who excels in that capacity is Jabari Smith, um, right? You know, who I think you see it probably show up more defensively now than, than anywhere else at this point. But he's a guy who ranks in the 90th percentile for this particular quality. And at a guy, uh, his size, that's really unique, right? I think, um, you know, when we look at guys with, you know, his reach uh, and that abduction quality that he, that he has, that his, uh, you know, standing reach and hip abduction, you know, the list of guys, you know, who've spent time in the NBA doesn't reach double digits um, when you think about guys with this, this quality, right? It's something that just lets you tap into, um, yeah, tap into like, uh, again, the ability to generate force or put yourself in a, you know, in a, in a position to be dynamic, regardless of what the, you know, the question is being asked of you. Yeah. And, and so in this case, you're saying it's rarer to have that kind of performance um, in bigger bodies, essentially. Yeah. So, which so- goes back to your, uh, your Mr. Mobley, uh, you know, name drop earlier. Yep, and and not just that, but I think if you take a step back from the the nerdiness of this conversation and you just think like it's rare in basketball historically, you kind of almost think of them as unicorns to have guys that can move and bend and twist, especially in the air, uh, that are big bodies. And when they come along, it's so valuable because for the you know the smaller uh, people amongst us in the species, you know we can do that more easily but the trade-off is of course basketball is a really vertical game and and we're shorter and smaller um and so we we, you know we end up your 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 career fizzles out before you make it to a p3 and a thinking basketball (laughs) podcast (laughs) yeah a little little selection bias there uh yeah Yeah. that's that's exactly it right when you you know we can combine that kind of mobility with that kind of length that's pretty exceptional brandon ingram mikhail bridges two other guys in that you know sort of same category for us um, right. You know, you've got some tools to be pretty damn effective at that point. So um, I, I also thought of McHale in, in listing names in this category. So now let's get to the other side of physical athleticism. So we just touched on all the quote unquote hard athleticism stuff. The second component of this model that is also physical is what I'm calling soft athleticism. And let's start and immediately you'll see how this plugs into the things we've talked about. Let's start with something like balance where again you're not you're not coming up with a combine box score that goes boy that guy has great balance <laughs> and and yet the general concept of kind of balance and center of gravity uh can be a massive differentiator when you watch basketball players who succeed versus some of those um who don't succeed so a little bit more about balance in this case i'm thinking of really how you perform your change of direction that we discussed, your change of pace that we discussed. This is often with the ball as a ball handler, but it can be that reactive component as well on defense where you're trying to maintain your balance of center and center of gravity as you react to what's happening. So you've got these physical, these hard physical components of like moving forward and backward quickly, moving left and right quickly. But then balance is kind of the the term I would think of that that links them all together. The fancy term for all of the family of these things that we're talking about is proprioception. You know, the, the awareness of your body in space. Um, but it's something like recovering after leaning the wrong way on a crossover, uh, you know, versus other guys who, who might fall down immediately. 
Yeah, I, I, I think, um, you know, the not to bleed hard and soft athleticism together too much, but, uh, you know, we do think of our, you know, different types of athletes who excel in change direction environments. Um, right. There's a, there's certainly a, you know, a subculture, if you will, of, you know, athletes who are really, you know, who have, who possess exceptional balance, um, and athletes who change direction incredibly effectively, even if they don't have a lot of those, you know, explosive tools that, uh, you know, we're accustomed to, to seeing and in some respect, CJ, you know, probably falls, you know, you know, kind of headlines this category, um, as well, right. It's, it, it's, um, there's a, an incredible amount of proprioception going on that allows, him to efficiently position his body to be effective, you know, in, in, in any of these environments. And I, I, I want to continue by not trying to be negative and look at the weaker end of the spectrum, but going back to what we just said about smaller players and bigger players, yep. there is a divide for me. And so oftentimes you'll see, uh, take one of my favorite guys to watch Jaron Jackson Jr., yep. who has had a harder time sort of balancing his body as he has these explosive basketball movements. It's got him into foul trouble, things like that. Um, I thought one of the one of the big things in the 2021 finals was DeAndre Ayton and kind of Giannis's ability to throw him off balance constantly. Again, that often leads to foul trouble. So you do have this divide of like smaller, smaller guys, smaller body, less weight, um, usually lower center of gravity, stuff like that. That makes it easier. An historical name that came up for me when I thought about balance, um, you can go back to some of the guys we talked about earlier with the Steve Nashes of the world, but I think Allen Iverson hmm. here just struck me as an athlete that, like, I don't think I ever have a note of, like, Allen Iverson's, like, really off balance, and yet he's always doing these crazy things. Yeah. Um, in really explosive directions. And then a modern one, um, again, going back to players that I dove deep on in the 2021 season, the one that jumped out to me was Darius Garland in Cleveland, who's just this very shifty, herky-jerky, stop and start. A lot of the bleeding of the two categories here, they're both physical components of athleticism in the model where the hard and the soft work together. And Garland was a guy to me who, especially on offense, demonstrates fantastic balance. Yeah. Uh, and you know, he is another guy who falls in that same category as, as Trey and CJ or same cluster, I should say, as Trey and CJ for us, right. He's, you know, he, his, his balance is, uh, very, very impressive. We worked with him a little bit pre-draft, you know, a few years back as well. Um, and he, he certainly, uh, excels in, in that capacity. Um, I'm glad you brought up the, the size question as well. When you think about, you know, just limb or lever length, certainly plays a role here, right? It's, it's much easier to manage, uh, you know, limbs that are, you know, amount to six feet as opposed to seven feet. Um, and that's certainly going to tilt this discussion to some extent, uh, toward, you know, in favor of the, you know, of the smaller athletes. Having said that, when you do find a big guy who can, uh, who can compete in that respect, you know, that's, that, that that's where your you know, unicorn discussion tends to start. So speaking of unicorn discussion, <laughs> sure. uh, the next category here in soft athleticism, I, I think is a just enormous one in basketball. And um, in the model, I'm calling it coordination, but I'm really thinking of hand-eye coordination, right? Yep. That element of communication between what your limbs are doing, you just mentioned, what your hands are doing, um, and you know all the movements that make a basketball player successful. So on defense... This could be the accuracy of your hands as you jab in the passing lane or swipe for a steal or something yep. like that. Um, and of course, on offense, it's not just dribbling. 
It's not just passing, but it's the it's the sort of mother of all basketball skills, which is shooting <laughs> the shooting the darn basketball sure. itself. Uh, so you know we could probably go on forever with salient examples, but I think when we talk about athleticism, especially as prospects, when we kind of skip over this component, um, Nash has it. Uh, Steph Curry obviously has it to the nines. Um, I thought LeBron James, I thought this element of his soft athleticism really jumped out to me as I was doing his greatest peaks profile. Um, did I mention Kyrie? I mean, you know, (laughs) somehow not yet, but yeah. yeah, So, 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 you know, what Kyrie Irving is able to do with the basketball and how this kind of blends together. I think this is like the fourth corner of basketball proprioception where you have change of pace, change of direction, balance and coordination, hand-eye coordination, how you control your ballistic movements. The, the, the act of shooting a basketball is what is described as a ballistic movement. It's not fine motor movement. You're flinging your wrist and letting it fly. Um, but even another guy who I think, you know, if you're looking at scouting a player and you have this off the scouting sheet, you're missing a huge component of Nikola Jokic. Right. Like, like think about the hand eye coordination on that guy on both sides of the ball. He the man literally suction cups, rebounds out of the air, tips passes around in the middle of the game. Um, And of course, that intersects with some of the cognitive components we're going to discuss in a little bit. But yeah, to me, this is a hugely rich category. I'm I'm with you. And that that was the name that popped up immediately to me when I was reading through the uh, reading through the model. Just it's a hard thing to study. It, it is. I, I know, you know, there are certain groups I think that are trying. And I think if anything, right now, we've got some, um, you know, maybe better surrogates out there than actual studies, right. Whether it's, um, you know, ability like shooting percentages or, or what have you, right. There are different maybe surrogates for, um, for coordination out there. Um, but it's, it's a hard thing to study, which is, again, it's, it, it, it's why, uh, you know, Jokic is never going to show up um, as you know, the, you know, in, with this traditional model of athleticism, he's never going to show up as being the, you know, kind of the banner athlete, but he, he's, he deserves a, a spot in, you know, some conversation at least because there is some, uh, cognitive and coordination related component that is off the charts for that guy. Yeah. And, um, I think that segues us nicely into the next element of soft athleticism, which is reflexes and yep. and reflexes i think uh as we've said many times all these things work in coordination with with each other and reflexes will bleed into some of the cognitive components we'll discuss in a in a little bit with evan but jokic and just how he's using his hands um how he's how he's spotting something and throwing passes like the in this case, the soft athleticism component on the physical side of reflexes is literally, to me, your reaction time or your yep. response time to actions that need a physical response. Um, Larry Bird historically was a guy that this stood out to me. Like like his his reflexes on some of the passes that he attempted to deflect were it was like Spidey Sense stuff, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, it just was off the charts. I think. Uh, a current player who exemplifies this, especially on defense, is Draymond Green. 
Right. Um, just incredible reflexes when you slow down the film and, and you watch and, and it plugs back into hand-eye coordination, our last sure. category. So you see a pass coming and you have the reaction time, that the reflex component of like, oh, there goes the ball. I'm going to move my hand. And then the hand-eye coordination to track your hand perfectly with the ball. That's a Try to program that into a computer. That's an extremely complex task Good that luck. the mind yeah. does. Uh, and this, to me, can only be described as high-level athleticism. But to the spirit of this exercise today, this is usually just out of bounds. It's not considered right. uh, athleticism. So, um, yeah, I mean, again, I think we could go on and on with great players. LeBron James demonstrates this um, exceptionally as well, but r- really important stuff. Yeah, I, I think I, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up some of the you know, almost movement mechanics here as well, um, because there are you know, there, there's a lot of work being done on looking at movement mechanics in a pre-planned setting versus a, you know, sort of a, a more reactive setting. Um, and athletes who can, you know, almost mimic um, their pre-planned mechanics to some extent in a more reactive setting tend to be, I don't know, those are the guys who kind of break your brain a little bit. Um, you know, and, and this is uh, something of, of a throwback. This is actually before my time at, at P3. Um, but before, before I started, I think, uh, Jeremy Bettle, I believe was doing the work. Um, but there was, you know, some look at kind of a, like a, a, a lateral reactive drill, um, you know, testing some, some athletes and, and one guy just anecdotally, whose name kept coming up as his mechanics were like a metronome every time, whether he knew it, whether he didn't know it was coming, um, was Andre Kirilenko, right. A guy who you're just, you're, you're not going to say, you know, again, He's not the, you know, he's, he's not the, the banner athlete necessarily, but you know, when you throw him in a reactive environment, his mechanics are flawless, right. And his ability to execute a movement um, when he doesn't know what's coming was, you know, it was, was unparalleled at, at that time for, for guys who'd been through P3. It still gets brought up today, clearly. <laughs> and, and I'm so glad you brought that up because the point of this is to be able to then map it to, as we said at the top, you could take like a pick and roll, and describe the play and the key facets of athleticism that are happening. And with Kirilenko, there is a sequence. I can't remember the exact year. It might have been 2004. It was kind of that early, Mm mid-2000s where they were playing the Lakers. And he blocks Kobe Bryant's jump shot on like four plays in a quarter or something. And it plugs directly into this off the chart skill that you're describing, where you have to have the reaction time, the identification, we'll get into the cognitive component in a second, the reflexes, and then the movement patterns, you know, Karolinka was this big, long guy. Yep. Um, and, and these aren't like, oh, it's a foul, Eric. This is like, he just <laughs> smothers the ball as Kobe Bryant is shooting a jumper. Um, hopefully you can still find that clip up on YouTube if you search for it. But I think that's exactly what something like this maps onto in the game that is so valuable. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's incredibly, it's incredibly valuable. You know, Uh, anyone who's given Kobe problems is, you know, like, where do you find that? Right. You're not just, you're not just going to find that one every draft. It's, 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 uh, yeah, it's a super unique skill. Um, And I think, you know, to some extent too, it's, um, you know, there's been discussion for a number of years now about teams trying to find the next Draymond or trying to replicate what Draymond can bring to a team, another guy who excels, um, you know, in this kind of like reflex category. Uh, and where it gets so difficult is it's just, it's a hard thing to study. It's a hard thing to measure, especially when you, you know, combine it with the other attributes that this links, which with inevitably is everything else we've discussed through the model. Um, the last big component of 
soft athleticism or this kind of like century perception athleticism that we've been talking through uh, to me is stamina and it's it's your cardiovascular endurance it's something that again you know these days regardless of the sport it seems to rarely show up uh, on that kind of like box score um, combine sheet that you were alluding to it rarely shows up when you see scouting reports but um, I mean, I feel like a broken record how much I talk about motor in basketball. Uh, and historically, you know, whether it's a difference between Michael Jordan and other similarly athletic guards, he has just an incredible motor. But the, the endurance athlete of today, Steph Curry, and just mm-hmm. how much of a differentiator that is to be able to continue to perform. And this is where the model working together is so key to continue to perform the other components of physical athleticism that we've discussed and mental athleticism that we'll get to um, without wearing down. Because when you get tired and you get fatigued, and on last week's show, uh, Dan Peterson mentioned emotional stress, um, those things erode your performance. So the stamina component is kind of like your battery pack, right? It's kind of like, um, you know, how long, yeah. how long can you go and still have the radio on and the windows working? Um, right. I'm, I'm thinking of like an electric vehicle now, right? Like the other stuff has to work as long as the battery's there. And I think sometimes we take that for granted, especially now because load management and coaches are so sensitive to fatigue and stuff like that. But sure. to perform at a really, really high level, uh, and in the case of Curry, to be able to just outmove people, not just for your eight or 10 minutes you're on the court in the first quarter, but in the fourth quarter, in the 36th, 38th, 40th minute you play. This is something that is, uh, can be a difference maker amongst players at the very, very highest level, even all time historically. And it's something that I see rarely brought up when we think of describing athletic strengths that a player has. Yeah, uh, there's no doubt about it right you know when you think about you know either even you know even an anaerobic threshold but anaerobic or aerobic capacity ultimately what that's going to let you do is kind of replicate your you know best version of whatever movement you're performing again and again and again and ideally in you know it's as aggressive in the fourth quarter as it was in the first and you know that that's what it allows you to to tap into um you hope right but uh but but of course um, you know, it's, it, it's something that I think, uh, has generally been to your point overlooked when we think about, um, you know, how athletes perform, when we think about, uh, you know, how athletes, you know, how athletic athletes are, um, we tend to think about them at their peak, at their, you know, at their perfectly rested at their, at their maximum. Um, but this is a component that is, you know, it has huge implications for how they're, how well they're able to leverage that athleticism, whether it's late in a game or, you know, in, you know, late in a season. Before we jump to the mental side of athleticism, cognitive athleticism, um, Eric has been here discussing the physical components, hard athleticism, things like change of direction, change of pace, uh, strength, power, speed, pliability, mobility, vertical plane, all that stuff we discussed, the soft side of it with balance and coordination and hand-eye coordination and your reflexes and your awareness of your body and coordinating all these movements and even that underlying component of stamina that we just discussed. Eric, anything else you want to share with us uh, before I let you get out of here and get back to your day job measuring all these <laughs> things? No, I, you know, I, I, not, not much at this point. I think, look, I, I mentioned before we, you know, we started uh, recording, um, 
that the, you know, the model that you've put together is impressive because it is so nuanced. Um, and of course, you know, I think we'll, we'll probably have to go back and forth at some point over how much we weight certain aspects versus others, maybe depending on the play type, as you mentioned, you know, when, when we were, when we started, uh, but no, it, it basketball athleticism is so, uh, complex because there are just a multitude of factors that need to be, um, accounted for on every play. Um, so this was, this is a, this is a heck of a place to start. I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys, uh, tie in with the, the cognitive component. So without further ado, let's bring in Evan now, and we are going to get to the third big component of this basketball athleticism model. We've talked about the physical stuff, both hard athleticism, soft athleticism, but now it's the mental side of things and the sort of cognitive athleticism aspects of this model, if you will. Evan, um, it's been a long time, by the way. Thanks for thanks for coming back and talking about this. Yeah, happy to be here, Ben. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is actually my first podcast in quite a while, so apologies to you and the listeners if I'm <laughs> at all rusty, but uh, it's, it's great to be back. Nonsense. Once we get into really, you know, nerdy things about how an athlete's mind works, I'm, I'm sure you'll be um, in, in prime form. So uh, we've talked about all this physical stuff. The cognitive dimension has a few key components. We'll get to all of them, of course. But the one I wanted to start with, which we kind of discussed a little bit and batted around the last time you were on the show, when we were talking about feel, is this idea of pattern recognition. And essentially, being able to identify tendencies as they take place on the court. And one of the reasons I wanted to finish with this cognitive dimension is because it ties together so much of what we just talked about for the last hour, basically, where all of those like physical automatic processes, explosive processes, strength and agility and reaction time and all that stuff, uh, they sort of are feathered into your mind, your central nervous system. This is the thing governing all your actions and starting with in basketball, like, hey, this, this, this is a zone. Um, or here comes a triangle and two and a double team, or you know, just being able to kind of identify what's out on the court is, is such a, a baseline for everything that's taking place. Yeah, totally. I mean, when you think about the idea of you know creating or designing, um, working through the the process um, to think of a solution that makes sense for the situation you're in, the first step of that is information gathering. So a big part of that is um, especially the almost autonomous like pattern recognition that's going on when you're assessing what the situation looks like on the court. So you know like you said the defensive scheme that's being played, um, tendencies of of players that are on the court with you, especially opposition players, and what that might mean for where they'll be when you try to do the thing that you'd like to do uh so it all it all bundles together uh and that pattern recognition is super important before you even start to enact that physical solution that athletic solution right and and i'm glad you mentioned that because pattern recognition isn't just about seeing something with five or nine players besides yourself on the court it's also at this individual level which we talked about a lot last time something maybe like this player always likes to go left after he puts it through his legs or um, when someone comes off this pin down, he has a 
habit of curling off the screen this particular way. Those are all things that, you know, are a big part of the athletic process. And they are patterns that are recognized at different levels. And it kind of reminds me of what we talked about on this show last week with Dan Peterson, where you get into chunking, right? You get into seeing information and then quickly being able to recognize it and go, ah, that is a zone. I know exactly what that is in my brain. I don't need to add any complexity to it. Yeah, and when you can chunk all of those inputs, those sensory motor inputs uh, together in a way, you're almost like parallel processing them all. And so, yep. you know, you're you're encoding all this information more quickly than you could if you had to interpret each part of of the situation in front of you one by one. Um, and so, you you can obviously encode all that information more quickly, um, sequence things in a way, and and start to kind of plan the executive action for what your athletic decision is going to be in the moment and what makes sense given what's around you. I mean, one of the first examples I thought about here was LeBron James and some of the stories of his sort of like photographic like memory. Bill Russell has been said to have the same thing where you can go back and reenact a bunch of plays. And usually that comes from pattern recognition. Um, there's, There's a story where Doc Rivers says when LeBron went to Miami, there was some early season game and he was on the sideline and he just heard LeBron on defense starting to call out all the Celtic sets and plays. And he turned to his staff and he said, we're in trouble. Um, And of course, the, the coincidence there is that his own star at the time, Kevin Garnett, was known for the same thing. So another kind of like player who seemed to be really strong at pattern recognition use that defensively. Um, But, you know, you also see this with great passers, with Luka Doncic manipulating the pick and roll and understanding like, okay, these are where the chess pieces are on the board right now. Um, I've seen this before. I know exactly what's happening. If this guy goes here, I can do A. If he goes there, I can do B. Yeah, and I love those two examples. I think especially in contrast, and when you look specifically at the offensive end of the court, those two guys win in different but very similar ways. I mean, they're, they're very different athletes, right? Luca is a change of pace athlete. Um, he leverages strength um, and, and things like that. And LeBron is like a 99th percentile traditional, like classical athlete in all the senses that you would normally associate with like a tools-based athlete. He's incredibly strong. He's incredibly fast. Uh, his vertical is tremendous. Um, and, and he can couple all of those things together and it opens up the variety of solutions that are available to him. But both guys decide what makes the most sense for them in the moment because they have this extremely high level ability to process all of these factors that are going on, this extremely deep repository of past experiences from which to call on. So it doesn't take them as long to see if a defender that is guarding them is like shifting weight a certain way, for example, or they're playing a certain defensive coverage. And it's almost autonomous for them. They probably don't even proactively or, or like consciously think about it, um, at least outside of, you know, split second level stuff, um, such that if you could ask them what they saw, they can probably work it backwards uh, in like a post game and talk through it. But in the moment, it's like instantaneous. So um, that that is a, a huge way in which they win so consistently is, is because I always think of athleticism as like, athleticism and reading of the game as two different factors that can compensate for each other. But if you have both in spades, then the amount of solutions, the number of solutions you have available to any particular problem are, it's just a much larger number and it it makes you so much harder to counter in the moment. 
Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned speed and sort of how automatic these things are. The fancy term uh, in a lot of the research is pre-attentive processing. So it's not even at the level of your cognitive like awareness or attention if you're asked about it. It's happening super, super fast, under a couple tenths of a second. It's going to be pre-attentive processing, and that's what's happening here. Um, and you mentioned individual kind of uh, someone leaning one way or the other. One example I took note of this week from watching some old Bulls games was there's a great play where Michael Jordan is on offense and Jeff Hornacek is guarding him down on the block. And there's actually a ton of space, coincidentally, on this play. No one is near them. And there's a shot that goes up on the weak side. So imagine Hornacek just going um, to box him out and he feels Jordan going left a little bit. And I think this had happened a couple times prior in the game. And so what Jordan essentially ended up doing was recognizing that Hornacek goes to his left leg to block him out. And he leans left, and that causes Hornacek to continue to try to sit on his left leg, instantly discards him back to the right, gets inside of him, grabs the offensive rebound, puts it back for a dunk. It's just a beautiful play and a great example of this where these things um, can happen really quickly and they can happen in one-on-one settings. Another example from Michael's teammate, Scottie Pippen, I thought his recognition a couple of years ago of he was asked on TV, like, how would you guard James Harden? And he's instantly like, well, I would just move all the way over to his left shoulder and his left leg. I might even stand behind him, which, of course, the Bucks and then other teams adopted. But this is what we're talking about here in the moment in the game. Um, this sort of quote unquote cognitive process that is actually a real trait and valuable asset that allows you to unlock that fast twitch explosive athleticism or reaction time or whatever it is in the moment as a defender, as a rebounder, as a dribbler. Wait, I, I know you talked about reflexes earlier with Eric, and I always think of reflexes as, you know, uh, employing length in passing lanes. You recognize that a pass is going to come and you can get there before uh, an offensive player can. You get the steal. It's an easy runaway on, out on the other end. So um, I, I, I like those examples that kind of run counter to how I usually traditionally think of um, these cognitive processes that are happening to, um, I guess, suit or baseline some of those soft or hard athletic skills that you think of more commonly when you think of athleticism. Yeah, and and I like how you've multiple times talked about this information gathering process, because part of that fundamentally is your memory and your ability to encode things and encode these patterns and then access them in real time as you're playing the game. So Pattern recognition, to me, is a big part of that memory component. And the next big facet of cognitive athleticism, to me, is spatial awareness, which is also, you know, coming from your memory. It's something that you can kind of learn over time. You know, you're connecting these patterns to where you are spatially. Um, And I would think of spatial awareness as the ability to hold other objects, in this case, the player and the location of the ball usually, uh, in your head in relation to the court. Although, as I say that, there are some wonderful anecdotes from guys like Kobe Bryant over the years of knowing the position of the three officials on the floor and knowing their sight lines. And so you're in real time and you're in the post, you're coming off a screen, whatever, and you have a, a sort of spatial representation in your head of what an official sight line could possibly be because you know where they're stationed on the floor. So this is sort of um, something that 
typically connects to your, your teammates and where the ball is, but uh, I, I just think has really widespread applications in, in how you go about playing the game. Yeah, and I love that example of knowing where the referees are because like, I, I think it doesn't get a lot of credit. And I think one of the my favorite things that uh, is coming as a result of this topic and, and your model as far as athleticism goes is people don't think I th- often I think of the brain as like a muscle that can be trained almost with stamina like any other muscle has and so when you get used to holding you know all these different variables in, in your mind in this spatial map um, and you get used to updating that heuristic and, and maybe at first it's you know the, you, the other four players on your team and then you're able to parallel process and comprehend the position and and the changes of direction of the defensive players as well but if you continue to build up that stamina that bandwidth of of mental processing ability like like kobe did you can have room to to compensate or to understand things like um where the referees are uh where the 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 sideline where you are in relation to the sideline without even having that in your your field of view and it, it becomes you know this like almost sixth sense in a way, um, which is, it's, it's always really cool when uh, you can see players who just seem to have like an upper leg. And, and I think often it presents itself as being like a step ahead or two steps ahead. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to call back to Luka Doncic here as an example, because recently he's been throwing overhead passes a lot. Um, no look overhead passes. I don't mean in the forward direction. I mean, backwards over his head. Uh, for those who can't see me motioning with my hands over my head on video. But this is something that ties into these ideas where you map the floor and you have this tremendous spatial awareness of where everyone on the court is. And so you drive into the lane, your pick and roll is defended a certain way, and now you know exactly where your outlet's going to be. He's in the corner. He's lifting up from the corner uh, to above the break. He's at the top of the arc, whatever it is. That's what this is. And so we typically think of this, um, I was trying to limit myself, but I was like, man, the passer's really come to mind here. Um, Nikola Jokic, of course, someone like Larry Bird, historically. But I think examples outside of that kind of obvious passing dimension for me, something like Draymond Green on defense, and just that ability to know where guys are on the court at all times, and therefore connecting to other things we've seen, who's going to be a threat? How can I rotate quickly. Um, The next element we'll talk about, you know, how can I anticipate what's happening? These all kind of fold together in this dimension. Yeah. And Draymond just has such a large repository of examples that he's seen as uh, an integral defender in pretty much every defense he's ever been a part of. I mean, he's essentially been described as like a quarterback on the court in the way, or I guess since it's defensively, like a linebacker, he, he can call out a play before it's even being run. Um, sometimes from hand signals, sometimes from player position. Um, and, you know, he, he understands where everybody is, where they're going. And so on top of that, obviously, he has tremendous classical athletic tools. So when we think about athleticism and um, kind of this this feel for the game or this processing of information um, as two different forces that work in tandem and, and can compensate for weaknesses in the other, Draymond has immense strengths in both categories. And so the amount of plays that he can make on the defensive end, I, I think Matisse Seibel is another great example of a guy who just, he seems like he sees things two steps ahead because he just has unique solutions defensively and can see a pass coming before the passer knows he wants to make it. And it's, it's just such a blast to watch. Um, and, and like when you can put a couple of those guys in the same defense, like 
offenses have to reach much deeper into their bag to find a way to beat you because you've seen so many different things before. Yeah, and I've had a lot of international listeners listeners who uh, don't watch American football ask about these metaphors and analogies that we always make. I think the key one to know here, whether it's the quarterback on offense or the middle linebacker on defense, is for a long time, I actually don't even know if they still have the exact same setup because uh, I haven't watched football in a couple of years, but you literally had a radio signal inside your helmet where the coaches were feeding you information right before the play happened. And of course, you can't do that in basketball. So this is kind of what we're talking about. We're talking about your own built-in repository that identifies the things that are happening right before the critical part of a play, in this case on defense. Um, Pattern recognition, spatial awareness, your memory we're talking about here, but you tease the next one, and that is anticipation. Uh, And Matisse Thibault was one of the first examples I wrote down for anticipation because in doing a deep dive on him last year, it felt like he just has this sort of matrix-like ability to know when you're going to shoot a jumper and where and how you're going to shoot it. And there are times, of course, when he gambles and it goes bad. Um, and, And I would say, you know, if you said, well, is that anticipation if you go way too soon? Um Sort of. It's just, maybe it's a little misguided. It's not necessarily helpful. But he's also really, really good at feeling and timing up. Okay, you're about to shoot and you might not even know it. And I'm going to get right into your shooting pocket. And because of my other skills as an athlete, uh, he's one of those more vertical jumpers, very quick vertical jump timing, long reach for his size. All of a sudden, he's blocking it from behind. You had no idea what was happening. Yeah, and I like that you mentioned um, gambles and how gambles are judged because I think it's it's so easy for for a viewer to see a defensive player jump for a pass that he thinks he can get to. He flies right by the pass, the pass is completed, and now it's a 4v5 situation, right? And, and it, that's obviously salient because it's pretty frustrating. It's essentially like a self-imposed breakdown. But I, I like specifically looking at it from the perspective that that breakdown could happen for from either end of the the spectrum there like from either direction like i don't always attribute that to being a processing error maybe you or or an error in anticipation or attentiveness i think you could have you could know exactly when the pass is going to be thrown but if you don't understand exactly how your tools can be employed, your athletic tools or more classical athletic tools, both soft and hard, can be employed employed to get to that pass, then you may understand exactly when it's coming, but you may not be able to get yourself there at the perfect moment. And so I think that's what, sometimes there are some gambles that don't come off right, but in general, um, breaking that down a little bit more granularly like we're doing here is useful because if you can track why the errors are happening, then you, you can start to compensate for them more. And, and obviously, anytime you, you jump for those gambles and you aren't able to get the steal and the run out that, that would occur if you did, uh, it's a pretty salient mental example for the next time you're in a similar situation doing your pattern recognition, doing your information gathering. So it's it's a, it's a really fun example. Um, and, and gambles can be super useful because obviously if... They're high leverage plays. You either end up with a four on five with your, where your team has has to deal with your breakdown or you end up with a run out. So there are turnover generation opportunities um, that can also really restrict what uh, your your teammates can do to cover for you on the defensive end. Yeah. And, and as we said earlier, uh, when Eric was here, 
all these things interact and touch each other in different ways. And this is, you, you alluded to it, there's a real intersection here, especially between something like anticipation and reflexes, which we talked about uh, under soft athleticism. And all of this is kind of this dimension of, of reaction time. Uh, if you will, and and kind of when you're watching something unfold, are you ahead of it? Are you reacting instantaneously to it? Um, I would define anticipation this way. I would basically say it's the ability to accurately predict the actions that are happening based on smaller and smaller cues, and then, of course, act on them. Um, So if we think of reflexes as something like the speed of a physical reaction, this is almost before you need your reflexes. They kind of plug into the same dimension. uh, But this is this is something that you could even say is on the other side that we really can now put over on like our quote unquote, cognitive athleticism facets of what makes you successful out on the court. Definitely. And and I think we've talked a lot about the defensive applications of anticipation, but these also appear on the offensive side of the ball, too. And I think my probably favorite example of this is it re- and it relates to athleticism in a different way. Um, the dexterity that's required uh, as a, dri- a dribbler, a ball handler. So obviously, you know, you're you're encoding all of this information you're subconsciously or consciously judging the the weight and balance of your defender um this one-on-one song and dance where you know two players are acting and reacting dexterity is a, a great example of how the cognitive ties into the athletic because you're encoding this this possible solution prefrontal cortex you're you're planning something out an executive action and then you have to athletically through the nervous system enact that solution through all of these fine manipulations of very small um you know every every bit of your hand basically so getting deep into the weeds here obviously but like dexterity may for me be like the the penultimate example of how the cognitive and the athletic combine and i think that's one of the things that makes it so difficult to learn for players especially if they don't get opportunities to explore that in Um, you know, game-like situations, because you can do all the drills that you want to do, but the element that you take out when you do empty gym ball handling drills is you take out that reaction that the defender has. And and maybe you have a coach or something mirroring, um, or or, uh, you throw in different wrenches into those uh, situations for the ball handler to kind of get them to act more on their feet, um, act more reactively. Uh, But Taking out that game element makes it really difficult to develop that sense for when and how the dexterity must be applied in those game situations. So it's it's part anticipation, it's part uh, planning and executive action, it's part encoding of information, and all of it results in this solution that is, first of all, incredibly fun to watch when done at its highest level. Like I think Kyrie, um, as, a, as a ball handler, is probably my favorite example of a, of a guy who just does things that you wouldn't even be able to... like fathom unless you you've watched him do them uh time and time again and i I think he even comes up with like different solutions uh as his career has gone on so that's a really good example that i think is a lot of fun and and ties into the anticipation element of what we're talking about here yeah and and i was going to bring up Kyrie, and i think even if we just think about some of his moves some of his improvisation and how it connects to this model um 
we've we've got memory we've got pattern recognition of the defense in front of you and how they're set up and where their foot is and their chest positioning and their head positioning you have that short range spatial awareness that we talked about that plugged into that then you've got anticipation you know i think the guy's going to lean right if i put my hand out to the left this is all happening with like as you said all these fancy connections using your entire hand and your fingers and your arms and all this um you know, it plugs back into the concept of reflexes. This is coordination. This is change of direction he uses. He uses change of pace. Um, he uses pliability, bends and twists, and get down, gets down to the floor. So you can just grab a Kyrie Irving highlight or two, and you can see how it lights up so much of this model. And all of this stuff is functional basketball athleticism that makes you succeed. It is not just about that traditional combine box score, athletic, you know, jumps really high, looks really big. He's really fast and strong. It's all these other things that allow him to succeed. And Kyrie is such a great example because he's not that big and he also doesn't jump that high. He's not that strong. He doesn't have those tools necessarily. It's all these other things that we're talking about that allow him to succeed. Um, A few more examples here. This is a really fun category for me to think about. Rebounding. And of course, Dennis Rodman and and you like, I don't think you could play like he does anymore in the league, but he's still probably the all time exemplar of someone making a living by trying to anticipate where the ball is going off the rim. And that's its own kind of anticipation and mental function because your brain is doing calculus about this thing flying in the air and how it's going to ricochet off a rim and potentially a backboard. And he, you know, he goes back to pattern recognition. He said in the 90s, he started talking about how in his impression, in his experience, at least two thirds of rebounds come off to the other side. Um, You know, it's physics. It makes sense. But he's like, look, I do this all the time. Don't go box out randomly in some place when the shot's on one side. I literally run to the other side of the rim because that's where it's going to go most of the time. Um, We've mentioned some passers. I do want to mention when you watch Steve Nash, his ability to anticipate and connect to the spatial awareness that we talked about, the pattern recognition, and just realize, oh, I can throw the ball in between three players while Sean Marion's not even looking because in like half a second, no one's going to expect a pass and Marion will all of a sudden be open because no one's expecting that pass. So it shows up in that dimension as well. And then we've alluded to defense and middle linebackers. And one more big example I had was Kevin Garnett, who anticipates your plays so much. Not only does he know them and recognize them, but he anticipates them so fast and he paired that with his traditional strong, hard athleticism, those physical tools we talked about earlier, all of a sudden he was there before the pick and roll opening ever took place. And then when you evaluate Kevin Garnett, you're like, I didn't notice him do anything. It's like, that's because he was already there stopping the open thing that you would have otherwise seen. So yeah, really rich category. Um, anything else you want to add here before we get to the final facet that really just ties everything together? It's the, it's the entire model. Yeah, I guess like in response to the Dennis Rodman point, I think that example is such a good one because he was like literally studying spin rate off the rim, like direction of spin, like talk about applied pattern recognition at the most granular level. He was like, I'm going to make a career off of knowing exactly where your bricks are going to come off the rim. That is fascinating stuff. He's like, I'm going to put it on myself to build this entire repository of examples for myself. 
and that's just fascinating. But I love the the Nash example too, because when you talk about like the anticipation and and that defenses weren't going to be able to respond in the time needed to make a play on those passes. In a lot of ways, those unique solutions, especially as a passer, are designed specifically to lower the probability of anticipation for defenses. And so it's this constant cat and mouse game uh, between offense and defense of who can do the thing least expected most quickly uh, and most accurately. And Nash is great at that. Obviously, Jokic is great at that, too. And Jokic is especially unique because he has that classical strength, but he also has height. So he sees things that Nash wouldn't see because he can just look right over you. And so he's throwing these just wild cross-court skip passes that, like, the camera can't even keep up with. So I, I just wanted to kind of glow about those couple examples because they're some of my favorite players of all time. And I think for that exact reason, um, because they, they so embody the cognitive aspects of athleticism. So the final piece of this puzzle, of this model, laying out these different core facets of athletic traits that help you succeed in basketball is it's kind of a technical term. It's cognitive load. And it's this idea of, um, in one sense, how much can you process in parallel? How much can you handle in your mind? But in a more general sense, if you think about everything we're talking about here, see, decide, act, decision-making, um, reaction time, mapping things, it's, it's sort of how much of this you can hold in your head and be functional, right? And so th- another way you could think about this is kind of like a bandwidth for each of these players. And if you have a lower bandwidth, it doesn't mean that you can't do anything out there, but it usually matters when you encounter novel settings, when complexity increases. So instead of coming up with a bunch of individual examples here, I just really wrote down and want to focus on playoffs and what happens in the playoffs now and how I feel like this is such a big component of taking a player putting him in a playoff situation where all these other things are ramped up. You're playing guys that are usually bigger, stronger, smarter, faster. It's more successful, better hand-eye coordination, better dexterity, better shooters, better scheme, better concept. And then you go, we need you to do this completely new thing. And we're trying to simulate what it's like to guard Steph Curry in practice, but you're going to have to play him in the game and you're going to have to chase him around. And remember that stamina component we talked about uh, earlier when we were talking about soft athleticism on the physical side? You're, you're physically going to need to be able to maintain that while not draining this mental component of cognitive load. So this is the final piece of the puzzle to me. We can talk about specific players, but it kind of ties everything together because once you run out of mental bandwidth, it's hard to do a lot of athletic functions, either mental or physical. Yeah. And I, I love the bandwidth example or description of it. I also like to think about it as like balancing spinning plates on sticks. <laughs> yeah. and, and so those spinning plates can either be athletic, um, like movement based things. They can be strength based things. They can be problem solving or they can be both. And often they're they're both. Um, it could also be scouting uh, information that you've gotten from from your advanced scouts as far as uh, tendencies. So holding all these things in memory at once um, and also in processing uh, parts of the brain at once and not letting any of those spinning plates drop is immensely difficult. And like you said, in the playoffs, things are so finely tuned. The scouting reports are, are so advanced and there's a, a real understanding of what the other team wants to do, what personnel they have who are available and capable of doing it and how to stop it that it's this this building upon itself of like 
it's a chess match. It really is. Like people constantly describe playoffs as a chess match, and I think it's very accurate. So uh, the cognitive load example uh, or, or attribute really becomes especially poignant in the playoffs because I think a lot of times in the regular season, um, you don't have as much time. You know, you may be playing back-to-backs. You don't have as much time to do the opposition scouting. Um, and a lot of times it's a, it's a good chance for experimentation too. So you might try some solutions that may not be optimal in a do or die scenario, but um, are worth trying out in the regular season when the stakes might be a little bit lower. So in the playoffs, though, like everything has to be perfect to a T. And and if any of those plates drop, um, there's going to be a breakdown or or somebody's going to notice and and points are going to be scored because of it in general. So cognitive load is like maybe the most important because it is essentially like a a disk space, a a capacity to handle all of these different components of, of both athleticism and cognition at once in, in scenarios where, like you said, there, it could be completely novel. And it's like, okay, well, you have to hold all the things in, in memory and in processing space that you're responsible for. And also, here's this new thing. Solve this at the same time. Good luck with that. And you said you were rusty. You're on, you're on fire. Um, I, <laughs> I love kind. that. Yeah, no, I, I love that. That's such a good way to think about it. And so I think if you go back to like chunking or grouping information, we talked about pattern recognition, all your experiences, you, the, the bigger your sort of capacity, this cognitive load means you can handle more of those previous things. And then there's the other side of it, which is the novelty, which is taking in new things that you don't have that familiarity with and integrating them. So, you know, I, I, I think I made the example of chasing Steph Curry around. I think this is actually one where sort of, league-wide against 90-something percent of the players out there, the Warriors still generate a competitive advantage in the playoffs because you don't get to see that style a lot. So there's a novelty to it, and every defense that kind of comes up against it, it, it's exhausting, and it taxes you in this dimension of cognitive load, and some occasional players can handle it really, really, really well. Uh, And then other players, good defenders, you know, another example I think of is the Clippers in the bubble and sort of the mismatch of having to play the Nuggets and Jokic and that style of like, eh, just there's a really tall guy at the top and everyone else is going to run around him. And it's not about man defense. It's not about a pick and roll coverage necessarily. It's about keeping track of this chaotic zigging and zagging that has all these Curry, Reggie Miller, Ray Allen movement counters to it. And that adds a lot of cognitive load to the athlete and you see breakdowns and miscommunications and so on and so forth. So that that's that's really what this is all about. Yeah, and I, I, I love that talking about specifically in the playoffs how all of these actions build upon each other because things are specifically designed where you may get through four-fifths of the off-ball actions that lead into the shot that the offense eventually wants to generate. But if you can't handle the fifth, they're still getting a good shot. It's We talked about the spinning plates example. We talked about the bandwidth example. It's Basketball is the world's most, most athletic game of bop it. Like, yes, you've, you've <laughs> spun it. You've pulled it. You've flicked it. What came next? Oh, and I don't remember, and I have to start all over. And there's an additional three points on the board for the other team. So it... it and, that's why I think having a weak link in the playoffs, like especially defensively, a weak link makes it so much harder to handle those situations because there, there, there's an avalanche effect or rather a snowball effect going on there where the off-ball design of the play is so specific and so targeted and it's been like essentially created in a lab designed specifically to hurt your team that if you have an, an area on your team or a specific player that is able to be targeted in a specific way, they're just going to continue to be targeted in that way until they can deal with it. And and in the playoffs, those 
those margins are so fine that they really get teased out uh, almost every time, especially across you know, the statistical sample that is an up to seven game series. So hopefully we've accomplished our goal here today of redefining just from that traditional sort of combine box score, as Eric liked to call it, the the old fashioned way of thinking about what athleticism is. And we've got now, uh, at least in theory with this model, three main components that I see hard athleticism, soft athleticism. Those are the physical sets and then this sort of cognitive mental side of the game. Hard athleticism, we talked about change of direction, change of, change of pace, explosive movement, vertical plane stuff. Soft athleticism gets into controlling your body and balance and coordination and hand-eye coordination, dexterity, reflexes, and we'll put stamina in there as well. And then um, with Evan, we just ran down all of the kind of memory and chunking of information, pattern recognition, spatial awareness, anticipation, and this big one that ties so much together, cognitive load. And of course, your own build as a person um, is also a sort of plugs into every one of these, how you use your body, how you use your mind, so on and so forth. So that is it. Basketball athleticism. Um, Evan, thanks so much for coming by at this third leg of the race and, and helping us out with this. Anything you want to plug right now before you get out of here? Yeah, I, I so as many have been familiar with my work, uh, will probably have noticed I don't really do public content anymore. I work full time for an organization called Sports Info Solutions, um, and we're generating some really unique granular data um, at the player level, at the team level. Uh, that is really exciting stuff. Um, we're hoping to have publicly available data coming in the near future, uh, ideally, and a, and a platform on which to consume that. So. Just keep an eye out on our, our social media. Uh, we have a Twitter account. I think it's SIS underscore hoops. Hopefully that's correct. Um, we post some really, really cool uh, uh, data visualization stuff about some of our data. And hopefully that's where you would find any announcements about a potential public consumption platform for our data. Um, but other than that, thank you so much, Ben, for having me on and for generating this extremely cool model. Because um, I think it's one of the, the most unique ways to look at athleticism that I've had uh, or that I've come into contact with. And it's been a blast discussing it with you. Well, thanks for coming on. Hopefully people dig it. It is SIS underscore hoops. Uh, as Evan said, they do put out really cool stuff. I think my favorite thing from this season was the idea of um, sort of something something related to teammate shot quality and influences on those things. That was really cool. Uh, so you can check out that at SIS underscore hoops on Twitter. That is it for this episode. Um, if you want to support this show directly, head on over to patreon.com slash thinking basketball. We have more content there. I will publish on backpicks.com available for everyone. Some whatever draft version we're done with by the time we finish this recording and publish it, uh, some version of this model with some of the things we talked about today. So you can go there to reference it and sort of add to the conversation as we move forward. As always, thanks so much for listening all the way through. This is a giant mega episode. So if you made it this far, I really appreciate it. And of course, wherever you are, I hope you're having a great day.